If you would now, please stand, and I'm going to read God's word. And it's helpful for us. I don't know if you ever do this in 710, but, and stretch, you can shake it out a little bit before I get talking. Uh, a lawyer stood up. This is Matthew 10, verses 25 through 37. Give me some grace um, if I miss a few words. But a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, What's written in the law, and how do you read it? And he said, You should love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, hey, that's great. You answer correctly, a little paraphrase there. You answer correctly, do this, Jesus says, and you will live. And then the lawyer, seeking to justify himself, says, well, who is my neighbor? And then Jesus tells him a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to where he was, he saw him, and he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, he saw him, and he had compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and took him to the inn. He took out two denarii. He gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, Jesus turns, looks at the lawyer, and he says, now, which one of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man that fell among robbers? And he said, the one that shows him mercy. And he said, you go and do likewise. You can go ahead and take your seat. Now, by a show of hands, if you would, how many of you actually believe that the church is called to love the vulnerable? Let me say, yes. Come on, everybody's got to participate. Let's go. All right, yeah, there we go. All right, so here's what I'm not going to do, okay? I'm not going to try to convince you that we need to love the vulnerable because that's my to topic, trying to love the vulnerable, what that looks like for you all. Um, I've built trainings on Luke 10. As you can tell, I'm familiar with the text and reading through it. But I want to make a few observations, and then I want to land on one specific observation that I think is going to be really helpful for us as we move forward. And the first is to our credit. I believe that the evangelical church in America that we're all kind of a part of has done a phenomenal job at seeing, having compassion, and going. And that's the first thing we see with the Samaritan. I think we do an incredible job that we'll look out and we'll see those that are suffering. We'll see the poor. We'll see the weak. And we want to go to them. We'll want to go on a missions trip. We'll want to go down to a soup kitchen. Maybe we want to give some money. Maybe we want to take up a collection. And that is a phenomenal start to the journey. However, there's something else that's, that's happening here that I think is really important for us to think about. And that is, but the Samaritan with the Samaritan. Now, if you don't know anything about Samaritans, they are the marginalized. They are the vulnerable. They're the ones on the outside of the center. Who sits in the center? The lawyer. The lawyer that Jesus is talking to sits in the center of society, and he brings up a Samaritan. And what does he do with that Samaritan? He takes the person that's on the margins of society, and Jesus does this all the time. He brings them to the center and exalts them 
as the hero of the story. And that's what he does with the Samaritan. And why is that so important for us? Because I think we like to start at the fall. What do I mean with fall? Genesis 3. We like to start where everything kind of falls apart in God's creation. And Jesus sees people as beautiful. And even though they're on the margins, Jesus says, you can learn from this person. And the lawyer, think about this. The lawyer can't even say his name. Who? Which one showed him compassion? Which one showed him mercy? And he says, the one. Which one actually loved him? The one. He says that shows him compassion. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. But this is common in the life of Jesus. And this is what I say, that Jesus will go to those that are foreign. And quickly, those that are foreign. What do I mean by foreign? Not just foreign like another nationality, but those that are foreign outside of God's people, those that exist on the margin, the vulnerable. Jesus will go to them, as you see, and the woman, actually, the Samaritan woman at the well. What does Jesus do? Does he have to go through, to, through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem? He does not. But he chooses to go out of his way into Samaria, an area where the disciples would never want to go to be associated with Samaritans, and he goes to the woman at the well. What do you know about Jesus' friends? What do they constantly say about Jesus? This man eats with tax collectors and sinners. See, Jesus takes those that are foreign and they actually become friends and he builds a table around him so you imagine that this is jesus's dinner table and he has some people sitting at this dinner table he has a sinner sitting at this dinner table he has a tax collector at this dinner table jesus loves to lift up and honor vulnerable women oh my the love of jesus for a vulnerable woman at the dinner table he has orphans he has widows um, he has the lame he has the blind he has the poor. This is who surrounds Jesus' dinner table. What, what's a category for them? Vulnerable, marginalized in society. And this is who Jesus kicks it with. These are his friends. But there's another group, and this group stands over here. And they're always curious about Jesus. They always want to know about Jesus. They want to learn a little bit about Jesus. But there's some hesitations to actually be close. Now, why is that? Who is this here? This is the rich this is the powerful. These are the ones at the center of cultural life and society at that time. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the scribes, and they know, they know that if they want to go to that table and enter into the life of Jesus, they're next to the blind beggar. They're next to the one that had leprosy. They're next to the woman caught in adultery. This is who they have to sit with. They have to be reconciled in their relationships just to be at the table with Jesus. And you see this with the thief on the cross where they become family. You see three naked and exposed, humiliated men in the crucifixion of Jesus, if you remember the story, all lined up. One is giving Jesus shame and saying, if you're the savior of the world, why don't you save yourself? And the other one exalts Jesus and says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And he, does he say, today you're gonna be in my kingdom? No, he says, today you're going to be with me in the kingdom. You become family with Jesus. He takes those that are marginalized. He goes to them, those that are foreign. They become friends. They're around the dinner table with him, and they become family. Now, I think this is our greatest weakness in the evangelical church, and here's why. Here's why I think it's our greatest weakness, because we don't look at the poor. We don't look at the marginalized. We don't look at the vulnerable oftentimes and say, I have need of you. 
oftentimes we will look at those on the margins and the vulnerable and say, you need me. So I'm going to go to you. I'm going to help you out. But I'm going to exit, keep you at a distance because I'm not sure if I need you. And where does that language come of need? It comes from 1 Corinthians 12 because you see with the Apostle Paul, as he's writing his letter to the church in Corinth, he's talking about a body and he's building this body together. And he's saying, how can one part of the body say to another part of the body, I have no need of you? And this is what he says, even the weakest, most vulnerable parts of the body are worthy of the most honor in the body to be lifted up and exalted. I've done this work, so a little bit about me. I have done this work pastoring, loving, serving at the margins for for 10 years, and it's been such a gift. And I have a similar conversation over and over and over. I have a conversation, whether it's a Somali refugee who's a Muslim who I'm trying to lift up because they're created in God's image and they have value to contribute to society because they're a human being created in God's image, or if it's a vulnerable Latino woman who doesn't think she has value in God's church, I'm constantly lifting her up and saying, I need you. The church needs you. You're a gift. You're a gift to the church and you need to see it. You know a conversation I've never had? I've never had a conversation with a rich man wondering if his wealth is a hindrance in the church. Now, if you know the Bible in here, which one does Jesus warn more? The poor or the rich? Is it harder for a poor man to get into the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? No, it's not. (laughs) Harder for a rich man to get into heaven or get into the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And because we have forgotten this, because we haven't said, I have need of you, I think it's left us anemic and it's left us mediocre. I think the church hasn't been what God has called it to be because of this fact. Because I think we need to face the brutal facts. And you can take it or leave it. This is just my assessment. This is one man's opinion. (laughs) Okay? So you might walk away and say, I don't think he's right. All right. You're entitled to your opinion. I don't think we've loved the vulnerable. Now, why would I say that? Why? Why right now would I say, I don't think, and this isn't just here. This is just the church at large that we kind of engulf ourselves in this like kind of predominantly white evangelical church that we kind of all kind of are a part of. Why? Why would I say that? Because we haven't looked and said, I have need of you. I think we kind of function sometimes not as a loving father, but as a absentee father. So what we like to do oftentimes is we'll come in just for a moment. We'll give a gift. We'll say hello to our kids. We'll say hello to our to our wife, and then maybe we'll, we'll, we'll walk away for six months. And then we'll come back into the equation, we'll do a little bit, and the wife and kids are saying, hey, this is better than nothing, because at least he's coming, but what would they love? They would love covenantal love, because what is the love of Jesus? The love of Jesus sees a widow and her children, and they start to date, maybe every six months, and then they become friends around the dinner table, And then that husband comes to the wife and doesn't say, you need me. He says, I need you. He says, will you take me? Will you and your kids actually take me? Can I be a part of your family? Because you are a gift. Because this is what covenantal love is. Covenantal love is a contract that is unbreakable. It's a binding contract written in the blood of Jesus that is completely unbreakable, wrapped in a love story, a love story 
where fathers chase down prodigal sons because they have to have them in their lives. That is the love of Jesus. That is the love of Jesus. And God had to awaken me to this truth. Because I, I'm with you. When I talk about this, this isn't, hey, you all and me. No, no, no. I had to be awakened to this truth. My wife and I, a little bit about myself and my story. My wife and I always knew that we wanted to foster and adopt. It was always part of our, especially my wife. So we ended up taking a little girl into our home named Solmora, fostering her, actually just doing respite care. If you're not familiar with the foster care system, there's a foster family for a kid, and then you can do respite care, which is pretty much babysitting for foster families. So that's what we did. We're babysitting for, for a foster family, a great foster family. They loved Jesus. They were caring for Samora. So we would babysit, and we just absolutely fell in love with her and said, if there's any way, if she comes up for adoption, we would love, love to take her. But she was born with a rare genetic disorder called gluteric acidemia type 1. Don't try to repeat it. Very rare, very rare. And because of that, before she's two years old, if she gets dehydrated or she gets a fever, she could have a stroke, a metabolic crisis, which presents like a stroke. So she's with us. She's about a year old. She's hanging out at our house. We're babysitting for this family. And she gets sick. And my wife, who's a nurse, takes like very like copious notes on everything, you know, so everything's written down. You have to weigh the food, you know, so my wife knows. So we drop her off with the foster family and say, hey, she's a little off, so just keep your eye on her. And the foster mom that's great says, okay. So she actually sees her regress a little bit, takes her in to the doctor to get her checked out. And the doctor said, hey, she's fine. No worries. It's all good. You can go ahead and go home. It's, everything's fine. So my wife actually takes off, goes to Virginia to be with family. I'm forgetting why that is. But I get a phone call that night. And the foster family says, hey, Samora is really sick. Meet us at the hospital. So I live right down the street from Phoenix Children's Hospital. I jet over there. I'm in the ER before they get there, and I see them walk in, and immediately I know something's off. Something's not right with Samora. She's a year old at this time. Her arm is pinned out like this. This hand is pinned to her chest. They're immovable, and she's staring off at this glazed look into the distance, and we are freaking out. So they rush her back to the ER. They rush her up to the ICU. We find out the worst is happening. She's having a stroke. And I don't know if you've ever been in the ICU before where someone is dying right in front of you, but it is a madhouse. It's a wild scene because as it should be, you have doctors, nurses, techs, everybody's in a flurry running around her, trying to hook her up, trying to get her connected, trying to get her the meds that she needs, trying to save her life. And I'm standing back with the foster family, just weeping, watching her die in front of us. And it's in this chaos that a voice comes to me. And it doesn't speak to me. It rises up in me. And I know exactly what it is, who it is. It's the voice of God. And it says, come closer. And this voice is strong. In the chaos, it is strong, but it is gentle. And it says, come closer. I know exactly what this voice wants me to do. And some more is probably from me to this gal right here. You know, so I take a step. <laughs> all right, I'm going to walk close to you, but it's okay. I'm not going to get too close, all right? We'll keep our distance, you know? Come closer, so take another step. And I'm, at this point, I'm transfixed. I'm locked eyes with Samora. I cannot look away. Come closer. Until finally, until finally, I'm literally face-to-face -face with her. I crawl up into the bed. I am face-to-face -face with her. I cannot look away. And I go in and out of consciousness through the night because I was so emotional through the whole experience. 
I wake up the next day. The worst has happened. She's had a stroke, but they've saved her life. We actually become her foster parents. You have to remember, at this point in time, in this little girl's life, I'm nothing. I'm nothing. I'm not a biological parent. I'm not part of the state. I'm not a foster parent. I am a respite care provider, which has zero say in anything regarding her life. Zero. I just know one thing. I'm in love with her. That's all I know. I'm in love with her. So we become her foster parents. Two months go by in the hospital, and they're keeping her alive. And then we finally, we get out, we take her home. My wife, who's a nurse, we nurse her back to health. We try not, I mean, woo, we're trying to keep away from everybody. You can't get sick, can't get sick, can't get sick. So that goes on for about two years until we adopt her. She's a year old. And then now, just to give you a little idea, she's six years old. She's an incredible gift to our home. Still can't walk or talk. Therapies all the time, doing what we can. But cognitively, massive gift. Cognitively, um, no impairment. So if you know any, anybody with like cerebral palsy, if you're familiar with that, um, that's sort of how it presents. So, so in a wheelchair, learning how to walk, but she's about to start school. Woo! I know I'm going to be crying that day. About to start first grade here soon, six years old. But come back with me. So three years old, I, at this point in time, the only way to put it is I'm losing my faith. I'm losing my faith. I've been a pastor at this point in time about five years, and I held on to something in my work. I held on to a reality that God loved the vulnerable, that God cared for the weak, that God cared for orphans. And here, my Latina daughter with special needs who is an orphan is suffering. God, why would you allow it? It's a legit, I think it's a legitimate question. And my faith literally starts to erode. I'm not praying. I'm not reading, I can I'm reading my Bible, I can barely go to church. And all I know how to do is cry out to God. Not cry out asking him to help, cry out in anger. And little did I know at this point in time that this is lamenting. <laughs> Read the book of Lamentations. I never, no one ever discipled me in how to lament and cry out to God, but this is how I learned how to lament and just cry out to God in anger for what he allowed. So I'm at a leadership collective. I think Samora is about four, year old, four years old at this point in time. Faith is kind of getting rebuilt, still a lot of questions. And I'm up front, I'm worshiping. At a leadership collective is uh, where all the leaders at Redemption Church come together once every two months. So there's probably like 100 people in the room, leaders from all our 10 congregations coming together, worshiping Jesus. I'm up front, I'm trying to worship, my hands are raised. And all of a sudden that voice comes back to me. That voice starts to speak into me again. And it says, come closer. And I know exactly what God's doing. He, he wants to tell me something. Because go back to Samora in the hospital bed. I have no idea why God is telling me to come closer, come closer, come closer. I end up in the, in the bed with her, staring at her face. Why? Come closer, come closer. I'm saying, God. So I start to pray, God, what do you want to tell me? What do you want to tell me? And just like that, he says, when you see her, you see me. And I start to weep again because I know exactly what God is telling me. I had this picture, I would paint this picture in my mind when I was caring for Samora because we were in and out of the hospital for years. I mean, literally once, once a month, we'd be in the hospital at least a week for something, you know? So we're living in the hospital like three years. And I'd just be standing over her hospital bed because I took most of the night shifts. My, my wife would do the day, I'd take the nights. I'm standing there over top of Samora, you know? And I'd have this picture that I'd paint in my mind. God didn't give me a vision. I'd just paint a picture of Jesus standing next to me and he'd look at Samora and say, Josh, I love her more than you love her. You have to know that. 
Josh, you can trust me. I've proven myself trustworthy. Josh, I'm always with her. I've suffered before her. You know what image I never had? You know what image I never had? Is Jesus in the hospital bed and me caring for him. And then Matthew 25 comes to me. And if you know what Matthew 25 says, this is what Jesus says. They say, Jesus, when did we forget you? And he said, what you did to the least of these, you did to me. So this is the image that Jesus gave me, is that I am cleaning out his bedpan. He's lying in the bed. And while I'm cleaning him up, he's teaching me about the kingdom of God. As I said before, we serve a naked, shamed, brutalized Savior hung on a cross. He became vulnerable so that we could have strength. He that was rich became poor so that we might become rich. Another image comes to mind. Samora was three years old. I'm reading the Jesus Storybook Bible with her, if you're not familiar with that. Incredible Bible. Kids Bible. And we get to the crucifixion scene, and there's a picture of Jesus being crucified and he has these wounds all over him and I'm watching some more I'm not sure what she's doing at the at the time but she's pointing to Jesus and she's pointing to herself and then she points to Jesus and I'm recognizing she's pointing to where the spear went into his side and then she points to her g-tube you know her feeding tube and then she she points to Jesus there's a scar right here on Jesus's chest in the picture and then she points to where her port is Medical port is where, like, you access IVs. So you put in, it's, like, really easy. You can always, like, give fluids and access IVs. And at three years old, my daughter is identifying with the sufferings of Christ. You know, people oftentimes will say to me, she is so lucky, blessed. You know, if you're a Christian, you change the language a little bit. Um, She is so blessed to have you. And immediately, there's a thought that comes to my mind, you don't get it. Or at least you don't understand the kingdom of God. And then every once in a while, someone will come to me and say, you both are so blessed to have one another. And I said, you get it. I need her just as much as she needs me. She teaches me about the kingdom of God. At the same time, I'm teaching her about the kingdom of God. So what do you do with all this? 710, if you're thinking, okay, wow, heavy. What do I do? Well, I'd love to to roll through a list with you if I thought that was going to be the most helpful thing. Five things for you to do if you're thinking about trying to care for the vulnerable. But I'm going to give you what I believe is the basic tenet to being a disciple of Jesus is that God calls us to do one thing. He calls us to hear his voice and obey. We are a people that hear the voice of Jesus. He speaks to us. He speaks to us in this room. He speaks to us through me as I'm communicating to you. Maybe God is saying something to you. Maybe God is saying something to you right now. I don't know what he's saying to you. I have a friend that says God has the whole creation. (laughs) God has the whole creation at his disposal to disciple us and to speak to us. Are we listening to hear God's voice for how he is leading us to love the vulnerable? Because I know one thing is that every single one of us is called to love the vulnerable. What that looks like as a community and what that looks like for you, I don't know. I don't know what God is saying to you, but I do know he's calling us to obey him. You know, now I realize, and I'm going to end with this. Now I realize, fast forward, 
five years, when God was telling me to come closer to Samora, he wasn't actually telling me to come closer to Samora. He was telling me to come closer to him. But to get to him, I had to go to her. <laughs> you know, Paul says in the book of Philippians that I may know him and partake in his sufferings, that I may know him, becoming like him in his death. I want to know Jesus. Do you want to know him? If you're here tonight, do you want to know him? Do you want to see him? Do you want to get closer? Is everything within you crying out just to get closer to Jesus? Can I just get one step closer to Jesus? Go to the vulnerable. Love the weak. Love the poor. <laughs> and in the face of the vulnerable, I promise you, you can look me up. You can come find me. <laughs> if you go to the vulnerable and you love your neighbor and you do not gaze upon the face of Jesus. Pray with me. And I'm going to end it. God, I thank you for this opportunity tonight to be with this community. God, I thank you for the privilege. And I pray, God, that what I said, whatever you didn't want them to hear, blot it out. God, whatever they need to hear, God, to move them towards you and to move them towards the vulnerable, God, I pray that you would cement it deep inside of their hearts, God. I pray that Holy Spirit, God, just fill this room and may your presence just be so real with us that you are filling us up, God, and guiding us to obey the voice of Jesus. And then, God, if I know one thing, <laughs> I know one thing, it's I want more of you, God. Guide us in loving you and serving you and following you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.